Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, I have a question for you. Sure. Do you do local history in your classroom? No, I don't. I teach, <laughs> yeah, no, I teach uh, That's a disappointing world. disappointing answer. I'm really sorry. I teach world history and it's not really something that we do. I remember growing up, I grew up in a city known as a town of Methuen, which is interesting for its own reasons. And in elementary school, one of our project was to do like a history of a, a local building. And so I chose the Nevins Memorial Library. It was kind of exciting. I really did like the library. It is actually gorgeous. And so I learned about the local history that way about David Nevins, who founded it and then, you know, built, well, he was a merchant and then he built it. And I thought that was actually kind of cool. But as a teacher today, I don't use local histories. And I probably, I mean, I, my, Amer- my U.S. history class, I, I really would like to a bit more or at all. Yeah. And there's sometimes not as many resources, I feel like, for local history, right? In the sense that, like, I can't go on and there's a bunch of primary documents. But then I'm like, that's not right. There's people all over my community who probably know the history. So there probably are lots of local resources. I know recently, so I used to live in Oklahoma City, and I kind of still follow, like, the things happening there. And I really appreciated during Black History Month that one of the councilwomen for the city her name is Nikki Nice. I guess she was like a radio DJ and went by that. Now she just goes by that, which is a super cool name. That is kind of and awesome. She, and every day she tweeted local history. And I had taught Oklahoma history, but I did not know a lot of the history she tweeted. So I was just so appreciative of her bringing that community knowledge in. And yeah, we should do more of it because it's like really fascinating. And I think the students help with bringing it out. And you can do your WPA interviews and, and oh, go yeah. talk to people in your community. Yeah. Oh my God. I also had to go to like a senior living center and talk to people there too. It's actually really cool. Now I think about it. My elementary school did a lot of this stuff and I just, I don't remember. Yeah. Well, I think it obviously is important to understand your local history because it shapes your community in so many ways. It can help you understand who your community is for better and for worse. They're the people that you meet when you walk around the street. Right. Right. And and there's also people who can come to your classroom, right? Like Mm. it's hard to get somebody to come to your classroom from across the country, but the people in your community may be able to stop by. That's kind of cool. Now, Dan, you're probably leading us somewhere. Well, today we're going to bring in some guests who are going to help us think about how to do local history, but not just any local history, some Women's History Month local history that focuses on local women's history using storytelling. And so we would like Yes, it is. And we would like to welcome into the podcast, Tina Ellsworth, Janelle Stigall, and Amy Walker. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. We Thank are you. so thrilled you all could come. So can you each tell us a little bit about your background in education? Oh, I'm Tina Ellsworth, and I'm the K-12 Social Studies Coordinator for Olathe Public Schools. Spent some time teaching middle school and high school before going to a residential PhD program, and where I studied curriculum and instruction and focused on social studies education. And where are you exactly? I, I, I didn't catch the... Uh... 
Olathe, Kansas is a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri. Gotcha. We're actually the second largest district in the state. We have about 30,000 students in K-12. I used to work a lot with the biggest district in the state, USD 259, when I was in Wichita. <laughs> Wichita. But- by the way, most of our podcasts now are Kansas-focused. Yeah, this is the uh, second time in a row, I think. We, we had some nice discussions about Emporia in episode 108. Janelle, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? I can. My name is Janelle Stegall, and I teach third grade in Olathe, Kansas, at Madison Place Elementary. My it's Iowa State, so there's the Iowa connection. But I went to Iowa State, came to Kansas, taught kindergarten for a really long time, and have taught third grade for the past five years. A 26-year veteran teaching in the classroom, and I love it. That's great. We have had on an an Iowa State Cyclone. Now, they didn't get their degree there, but their professor there now, in a previous episode, Noreen Nassim Rodriguez came on and talked about teaching Asian American histories. Oh, how exciting. There's your Iowa State connection. There it is. There it is. And Amy Walker. Yeah, hello. I'm Amy Walker, and I teach in Olathe, Kansas. I'm currently teaching seventh grade social studies at Summit Trail Middle School, which happens to be a semester of world geography and Kansas history. So pulling in that local history has really helped this year. Before seventh grade, I spent 10 years teaching fifth grade. So have a little bit of elementary background too. Was it weird the first time when you went from your fifth grade class to your seventh grade class? Or when you got those kids from fifth grade back in seventh grade, and you're like, oh, and they're like, oh, you again, and you're thinking the same thing. <laughs> or is it just like kind of exciting because you get to see them like two years later, so taller, and whatever middle school kids are like? Yeah, it's really exciting teaching seventh grade. I actually don't end up getting my old students. They feed into a different middle school, oh. but I still get to see a couple kids and just kind of catch up with them. And Honestly, you know, fifth grade is not too much different than seventh grade, I found. But they're they're great kids, good age of kids. I did always like when I taught like a sophomore class, and then the next year I taught a junior class, and the students walk in, they're like, oh, you again. I was like, you again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. We, we always had fun, but. Yeah, feelings mutual. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is like a district vertical alignment meeting where we're like going to have to work on our curriculum because we have people representing elementary, middle school. High school, higher ed. This is quite, quite oh, yeah. the uh, coal- we coalition. Dan, we should move to Olathe. I know, right? We could we could help complete the team. I don't know that they need us. <laughs> so let's jump into this. Can you all tell us, you wrote a fantastic article or it wouldn't have been published. You published an article in the January, February volume of Social Studies in the Young Learner. And the article is titled, Remembering the Ladies connect to local women's history using storytelling. Can you tell us about the work you did for this article? So last year, we attended a workshop with Judy Seema, who is a national storyteller, and she was giving us some keys and tips for how to incorporate storytelling into the classroom. When I had worked with the city of Shawnee, Old Shawnee Town is a museum here locally, and they reached out to me saying they were going to have this workshop and all call out for teachers to join. And several of our elementary school teachers showed up that day. And after we got done learning about how to use storytelling in the classroom, we quickly started thinking about how we could not make this just fictional, just for the storytelling purposes, but how to incorporate that into historically accurate narratives and actually get kids talking about writing real histories that were based in fact and got kids using primary sources. And then these teachers came to me and they said, hey, you know, for years we've been using the wax museums 
as a very traditional way of getting kids to do some kind of biographies. And this would be a great way to liven that up. And so when we talked through it, I said, well, I have ideas for how we can incorporate cause and effect and chronology and using those primary sources. And we can really blend all of this together. And that's when the teachers started putting together different lessons and activities. They got the kids doing that. I'm glad you veered away from the wax museum route because I find wax museums so scary and they give me nightmares. The one in and Salem, there's, they're melting <laughs> it, and it adds this whole new level of dimension of frightening for the Salem witch trial. It's crazy. When does our, when are we having our wax museum episode, Michael? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think the feeling's mutual with the nightmares. I'm sorry, Tina, we are easily distracted. So after Tina had us come to the workshop, it was amazing. And we learned a lot about storytelling. But with my kindergarten background, I had already really been doing a lot of storytelling with kids. And I was, I was kind of energized by the fact that it would also be so useful in the third grade classroom. What we do in Kansas in third grade is we talk about our communities. And so we were about to embark on a unit in third grade on Olathe history. And we just happened to have the Mahaffey Farmstead, which is close to where our school is. And the Mahaffeys were people who moved here in the late 1800s and built a farm and had a stagecoach stop on the Santa Fe Trail. And so usually when we go there, we learn about the Mahaffeys ahead of time and all the kids learn about everyone. But instead of doing that, this time I had the kids choose a specific person to research and then tell the story of. And rather than doing the wax museum, as we had done before, we did more of the storytelling approach like we learned in the class. So I'm curious, can you tell me more about like, what did you learn about what makes good storytelling and, and what can, what do teachers need to understand about that to try to integrate it into their classroom? Because I do find that you know, I'm always I always admire really good lecturers because I think they're good storytellers. And so I always think that that's a way. But I don't know that I ever really mastered that skill. How do we bring it into our classroom, both doing it and maybe, you know, learning it from other people? Amy, you want to do that one? Or? I think, you know, getting kids to realize that storytelling is not scary and being a model of storytelling, you know, we saw how engaging it was when some of the performers told a story in front of us at the workshop and how, you know, we were just sitting on the edges of our seats listening to some of these really interesting stories about people who we had never even heard of maybe. And I think just being a model for kids and using it to start a lesson, we learned a lot about the structure of storytelling and how to plan and set kids up for success as far as practicing and using a graphic organizer to first visualize their stories and then add details with, you know, closing their eyes and visualizing and using sensory details and then being able to incorporate that into pictures first before we ever ask them to do any type of performance. Another really cool thing is, you know, asking them to imagine what that person would be, how they would be moving or what they would be seeing, you know, while they were in that situation. Again, going back to not doing the wax museum type of biography, but really capturing a snapshot of that person and why that person is historically significant and maybe picking, you know, one historically significant event from their life. And that feels less overwhelming to students, I think, than 
asking them to tell their whole story from birth to death. So. And it also brings the why, right? Like it gives the kids the why are we studying that person? And it's not just another activity that you're doing in social studies, but it's because this person made some kind of impact on that local history. Absolutely. And, you know, this is telling stories is something that comes naturally to kids. And so they have done this in the form of writing narratives throughout their school careers. And so just getting them to take those narrative stories that they've already written or told or you know, even just sharing about their day, they're, you know, that structure, they that comes naturally to kids. So just taking those skills that they already have and applying them to learning, you know, about a, a local person, a person in history or historical significant person is important. So I do find that really interesting to think about whose stories we're going to tell, because we, we all know in, in social studies textbooks and in social studies curriculum, some people's stories get told, some group stories get told, others do not. And so identifying significance is one part of it, but there's also a lot. How, how did you wrestle with identifying whose stories to tell and how to help kids pick different stories and a diversity of stories that help to really understand, you know, the local history you're trying to get at? The way that I help the kids do that is we have a book that's given to us in the city of Olathe. The city of Olathe, in coordination with uh, folks like Tina and other places, other people, they actually provide us with a book ahead of time that has a lot of the history already in it. And so some of those folks are already in there, like the Mahaffey's and Chief Black Bob and all different folks are already in there. And so we started there. And then we also went to the Olathe website where you can find all of that added history. We have a lot of history folks available there. And then this year, I changed it a little bit from what I did last year because I found out that there's a church that was formed in Olathe back in the late 1800s by some exodusters. And so I actually contacted some church members, one of whom I actually taught in kindergarten, and she still attends that church, and she's our school psychologist. And so I kind of determined it based on this time around based on I wanted to kind of cover all the different people groups that we had in Olathe, because as as we know, we are we're quick to be able to grasp the white history that occurred in our area. But the indigenous people and the African-American history is not so readily available for us. So I found that I had to go maybe search for that a little bit more than I did the other history but it was readily available to me once I did a little digging. So, And for those who don't know, the Exodusters were African-Americans who migrated from states along the Mississippi River to Kansas as part of kind of the Exoduster movement in 1879. Yeah. And also, it's a great band name. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and it's really amazing to look into. There's another community of Exodusters in Kansas, in Nicodemus, Kansas, and it's a national monument. But what's different about Nicodemus and Olathe is that in Nicodemus, the railroad never goes through the town, whereas in Olathe, the railroad comes through the town. And since the railroad comes through the town, all the commerce comes here. And so we're mm -hmm. able to talk then about the economics that comes and the reason why those folks are still here. And Nicodemus is now a town of 54 people, whereas Olathe is a huge town with you know 36 elementary schools and several high schools. So it's, it's really an interesting piece to, to research and to let them retell based on each of these different folks that they find out about. I'm learning so much about Kansas right now. 
<laughs> the one thing that I wanted to add, because we do happen to have that little book that's a handy with like the Olathe history already in it. But if you're in a district where that's not readily available, I would really encourage you to look at your local museums and historic sites and just start making some phone calls to even area archivists and ask what kinds of treasures they may have there that you can use in your classroom. Because we did make some phone calls to the Kansas Historical Society and asked for any kinds of women history items. And the archivists were obviously thrilled that we were calling and that we wanted to use their sources. And they emailed them to us within like an hour. And we had a whole bunch that we were able to curate. So you have to be able to generate a list of these people, especially for elementary school, for people that you know that you have access to primary sources to be able to read about. And also reaching out to indigenous groups. I've started to make more contacts. We have Haskell University in Lawrence, Kansas, that has they have a museum there and also libraries. And I've been in contact with them. And then as a result, other people have found out that I've been asking questions for more information and more people have been reaching out to me. So it's a great way when you start getting connected with those local institutions to really broaden that network and increase your access to those primary sources that you otherwise wouldn't have access to. Yeah, and I know I've found when I reach out to groups that there's, whether it's indigenous groups or whether it's archivists who are just, you know, ecstatic if you call asking for primary documents, that's how you really get archivists excited. That people, a lot of people are really excited to share history and, and kind of, you know, provide it, especially when it's going to be used in schools. I always see enthusiasm around that. It really seems like some detective work is needed to be done prior to getting students involved in, in the process. Although I guess if you have older students, you might have them do some of that as well. Yeah, I think even I'll say that's for younger students too. That's one of the best parts of the work. That's my whole metaphor for our social studies, elementary social studies program at UNT is oftentimes that we're social studies detectives because it puts us in kind of an, an inquiry position to ask questions constantly. And so, and we try to do that from kind of a critical stance too. And yeah, it's that our students really get into it. I prefer to think of them as mini Indiana Joneses. I know. You said whole, yeah, that was uh, an earlier episode. <laughs> Sorry. It's a visions of Ed trope. <laughs> you like to refer to television. If it's not Indiana Jones, it's Sesame Street. I really liked your, your Sesame Street reference earlier. I, I do. The people it. that we meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So if, if I were interested in bringing a storytelling into teaching local women's history, what are some steps that you would recommend that I do? Yeah, so we used the steps recommended by Judy Sema from the workshop that we went to and still followed that same framework, but just added in that historical thinking piece and using res- uh, primary resources to help kids really get a deeper understanding. So the steps really don't look that different from what we learn in the workshop. But we've already talked a lot about, you know, the step one, choosing a person with some guidance as students are younger, but as they get older, really working with that C3 framework of inquiry to be able to allow students to really pick their person and and start to really ask their own questions about that person. And then step three would be to really look at that person as a in a storyboard and draw some pictures based on that person's life. Again, we want to really focus on a snapshot of that person's life. And it can be adapted, you know, by folding a piece of paper into six squares, or as you get older, using more of a graphic organizer, but really leaving it up to the students to 
pick that historically significant snapshot of that person's life and then develop it from there. And then after the storyboard is created, you know, we ask them to, like we talked about earlier, add some sensory details and really using those primary resources to understand and add details to that person's story. We also encourage students to verbally tell the story out loud before they even really write it down in a narrative format. And that just kind of helps them understand and organize their thoughts before, before being able to perform that, that person's story. And then finally, just sharing her story or the person's story that that, that student picked. In addition, there's some great opportunities for speaking and listening skills, and there's some great opportunities for student feedback, and it matches a lot with our ELA standards as well. And one thing that I would add is on the storyboard, instead of having students tell a story chronologically, step one, step two, three, four, five, six, we have them think of that historically significant event and draw a picture of that in box three. And that was really significant because if we want students thinking about causality, then we want them to be thinking about what events preceded whatever you chronicled in box three, and then what events came after it and culminated in that synopsis of what made the person historically significant. So the way that we actually ordered the kids creating the storyboard was to give them greater opportunities to engage with that cause and effect relationship. And then the secondary was the chronological ordering that then came from it. So we were able to hit a couple of different things in one swoop. So I, I watched a, an episode of Scandal and I realized that they made a big thing about having OMG moments or oh my God moments. I think that is what it is. Do you work on that? Like what are your, like your climatic, like, oh wow. I don't know if there's a technical phrase for it besides OMG in the television universe. You know, I think with the kids there is. I think when we go through the whole process of kind of visualizing what's going on and kind of going through the five senses perspective. And so like once you have that one little moment in time and then you bring the kids and you kind of have them imagine that time in their head and you you ask them to think about what they see and what they hear, what they smell, what they could possibly touch. And they kind of imagine that in their mind, kind of in a, I don't know, I think about yoga or whatever, you know, so you're like really into it. Right. And they're really thinking about all of that that's when you get those aha moments because they really start to think as though, as they're that person, like they're thinking about, Oh, how would it really be cold? Would it really be hot then? How would I feel all of those feelings and that piece? That's when that OMG kind of comes in and then they're able to add that into their story. Yeah. I was going to also add now teaching geography. I realized also those powerful moments where you can pull in some of the geography standards with the setting. And so going off, not just who that person was, but what is the context of where they're experiencing this event and bringing in geography has been really good for kids too, just to give them that full picture of that historical moment. I think one of the things that's been fun for me because I'm not in the classroom, but I'm in a district coordinator position is that I'm able to see these things happen and I can travel from classrooms. And some of the things that were really fun for me is that, you know, traditionally the wax museums are pretty stoic, um, almost read like an encyclopedia a little bit. But then when I see the kids do the storytelling, they feel it. They're starting to empathize with the person. And I feel like I'm kind of talking to them, that they really embody whatever the event was, because they're not just telling a story about I was born in this year, blah, blah, blah. 
they say, oh my gosh, this thing happened to me, which is why we opened up our article telling the story about some of the suffragists and their experiences when they were incarcerated, because it's telling that story that hooks people. And it was when the kids were able to focus on that story, they became hooked to the person. And it was no longer just this thing of rote memorization of these facts and figures about somebody, but instead it really humanized that historical person. I think that historical, you know, empathy piece is huge with storytelling. And that's something that students don't often get with just reading, you know, biographies from start to finish. So that's a really good point of that historic, creating that historical empathy. It almost seems like we're doing work that's just related to our lives, history, geography, storytelling, calling archivists and talking about primary documents with them just to make their day better, right? Like, I think we're doing things that are just part of learning in life in a way that it's hard when our schools are so standards focused, which are often very narrow, right? Like they're singular topics grounded in singular disciplines. So I like how kind of interdisciplinary multidisciplinary, or just, I like to say, those are just like life experiences. These seem to be to tell stories about the past and about our communities. It's really cool. So after doing this, what tips or or strategies do you have to give, well, yourself and other teachers who are interested in doing this type of work in their classroom? Well, one of the hints that I could give is that you want to be prepared for your first step, the choose her step. You want to you want to set out prepared, set out with a lot of people because you want to give the kids some choice, which means that you're going to have to be prepared. And although third graders can definitely research on their own, it's good if you have like a Padlet or some sort of place where you can store lots of good research for kids to use. So maybe do a little bit of that legwork for them ahead of time. And then another spot where I think it's sometimes hard for kids, depending on the kids you have in your classroom, is that last part where it's sharing their story. Some kids are really ready to get up in front of their class and or their grade level and share their story. And other kids, that's going to scare them to death. And so we've used different mediums to do that. We've used Seesaw, which is like a class journaling sort of site that we use at school. And then we've also used Flipgrid, which is nice. And then with Flipgrid, you can share that with other third grades really around the district, we can share it, or I can share it with our buddies in Arizona or, and, and our sharing can be more global and not just so Madison place based. So I guess those would be two hints that I have, which would be on the research ahead of time and then sharing to make sure the kids, you know, aren't uncomfortable or nervous or anything. I would piggyback off the performance part of it. You know, especially as students get older, they're a lot less likely to want to perform in front of their peers. So using those tools like Flipgrid or performing for a younger grade level has, I've found that to be a lot more successful starting off. And then as they get more comfortable, they're more likely to share. However, you'll have kids that are really excited to do it and, you know, model it that way. I did have a teacher at one of our other elementary schools who went with us who implemented it. And she ended up putting all recording the kids on video and putting it on Seesaw. I'm pretty sure it was the app that she used and then was able to share it with the parents. So the parents didn't necessarily have to come up to a night after school, but they could see what they were doing in class as the kids did those performances in front of their peers. And that was pretty neat. Well, that's great. So thank you all so much for chatting with us today. We're thrilled to have you on. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for the opportunity. So where can our <laughs> listeners find you and your work online? So I am, this is Tina. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Tina Ellsworth. And this is Janelle. And I am on Twitter as well at Janelle Stegall. And this is Amy. And I am on Twitter at Mrs. Walker OPS. 
All right, we got a lot of tweeters, and we will make sure that all of your Twitter handles and a link to this article in Social Studies and the Young Learner, and all of that is in the show notes. Awesome. So great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And we definitely will continue these discussions on Twitter and online and wherever people want to talk about storytelling, right? You could tell a story about this listening to this podcast, everyone. <laughs> that would be lovely. <laughs> At the Vision of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to tell us a story, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and I think one other place. And if you haven't already, and seriously, just do it. Subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be, including your smart speaker, apparently. Mm -hmm. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Krebka. And I'm at 42ThinkDeep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. <laughs> <laughs>